0: Nothing generates genuine passion, like a freaking mission where you're like, dude, I gotta get this done. I mean, it's yeah. so fun to be able to talk to like your grandma because we've got people who are like starting new and we're talking about like, well, how do you describe what you do enough?" now? But they're like, well, I'm working on fixing healthcare. Grandma's like, thank you so much. Like
1: it just gets you fired up. Welcome to The Authentically Successful Show. I'm Carol Schultz, founder and CEO of Vertical Elevation, a talent equity and leadership coaching and advisory firm. We partner with founders and CEOs to create talent-centric organizations, either where they don't currently exist or rebuild companies into talent-centric organizations. We are committed to supporting your vision and values by creating healthy, successful companies, leveraging the best talent, retention, development, and succession strategies. Listen at the end of the show for information about becoming my next guest on one of the most important podcasts for building thriving companies. Here we go. Joining me today is Brandon Weber, co-founder and CEO of NAVA, a disruptive benefits brokerage on a mission to bring high quality, affordable healthcare to all Americans. By melding cutting edge tech solutions, With deep industry expertise, Nava aims to fix healthcare, one benefits plan at a time. One interesting difference I noticed between Nava and its competitors is that they are 100% transparent on brokerage fees, something that is not the case with other brokers. Brandon, welcome.
0: Thanks for having me. My pleasure.
1: So uh, that's kind of a high level of Nava. Give me the more detailed version about your company.
0: Yeah. No. What um, you do. Happy to. Yeah, I think so. I think what we observed when we got into the health, decided that we wanted to help out in fixing healthcare, uh, was that a large swath of Americans um, effectively get their healthcare access through this very specific channel, through employer sponsored healthcare. Mm -hmm. So, your employer, my employer, uh, 168 million Americans get it. And the more that we dug into how Healthcare is purchased and then how it's used via that that channel, the more we were like, wow, it's really inefficient right now. There's a real lack of transparency for employers who are trying to put together these benefits plans and try to be smart buyers of healthcare. And then there's a real lack of support. And I think also kind of like literacy for employees trying to navigate their way through the healthcare system and and use their benefits. And so in a nutshell, what Nava does is we're using technology to help employers and their employees be much smarter shoppers and also much smarter users of healthcare and the health-related benefits benefits that they offer. And kind of specifically how we do that, we have, we spent a lot of time with the kind of slice of American employers that seem to be like winning at the healthcare game and they're America's largest employers. So companies like Amazon, Google, Walmart, they while the rest of us are getting absolutely crushed mm-hmm. by the healthcare system and costs are going up 10 or 15% a sure. year, you go talk to them and they're like, well, actually we've managed to keep our costs basically flat and our employees are really satisfied with the benefits that they offer. And the more that we studied their benefits teams and what they were doing, the more we kind of had this aha moment, which is we can actually productize a lot of what's going on in Google and Amazon and Walmart, Delta Airlines benefits departments, and bring it down to a 30-person employer uh, that is struggling to kind of, you know, to figure it all out. So that's what Nava does. That is our offering, which is we kind of bring the Fortune 500 benefits kind of stack technology um, and expertise down to small and medium-sized employers and their employees just as an easy to kind of deploy service. Um, so that's that's a little bit more about us.
1: So if I'm hearing you right, the Fortune 500, they have great buying powers at reason they were getting such a great deal. <laughs>
0: there's there's three reasons. So that that's the one that everyone kind of thinks about. Well, it's, sure. well Walmart's huge. Of course they can get cheaper healthcare. Yeah. Um and and so they do, but actually the two bigger reasons were that Walmart has the and and Amazon and kind of major major companies. What they do is they, they build these really big internal teams. They call total rewards of benefits teams. And they're constantly analyzing what's the cutting edge in healthcare and digital health. And so their, their job is to go, hey, go look at that mental yeah. healthcare like category and figure out what the right solution is for our population and then be amazing at deploying it. And then we hold you really accountable to outcomes like, is, is anyone using this thing? Has it delivered the ROI? And so that was actually the bigger lever. Um, you know, the group buying thing we can solve for. And so when you go talk to, you know, like, Marcus, who runs healthcare at Walmart, he will say so many of the things that we're doing are not just because we're big; they're just things that anyone can do if you had the right kind of like expertise and if you just had the time uh, to go do it.
1: And, and the so, staff to yeah. do it with, right?
0: And the staff to do it. So small and, companies don't have that. That is it. I mean, that is the number one thing we think about is like Mm -hmm. most of these companies have a one-person HR team and there's just, uh, meanwhile, like these big companies have 50 people who are dedicated to making this happen. So Nava fills that gap. We're that, you know, we're that outsourced 50 person kind of team.
1: Well, that's super interesting. So you founded the company uh, with your partner, Donald DeSantis in October of 2019, just coming up on two years. And the interesting thing is, is you just closed your A round. Uh, just about a year ago. And it was $20 yeah. million dollars. <laughs> led by Thrive Capital. Bravo. Yeah. First of all, what did what did you do about funding for the first year? Hmm. And what was it about Nava that had Thrive lead this very large Series A?
0: Yeah. Uh, great question. I think so. Donald and I have had an advantage in that we had spent about seven years building another company right. that ended up being successful. And and really achieving a lot, and um, and so I think what folks on the call kind of we'll, listening in will we'll resonate with is like second time founders do have an inherent advantage when it comes to capitalizing their next yep. kind of big idea yep. um, and so what we ended up doing actually is we we raised about a $5 million uh, seed round mm-hmm. uh, with Thrive Capital as the lead and then we raised a, raised a $15 million Series A so all Got in it. Okay. it was $20 million bucks. Got and it. so that, that seed round was about January of last year mm-hmm. and then in about November of last year we raised a Series A based on the momentum that we were seeing mm-hmm with kind of our early go-to-market. So that's that's just the breakdown. So we were pretty well-capitalized from mm-hmm. day one. And I would say we are very well-capitalized given our stage, mm-hmm. um, largely and because we have great ambitions. Um, and I think that the kind of the other element there from a fundraising standpoint is when you build relationships with investors where like you've been in the trenches together and you've seen the good, the bad, the ugly and, and seen kind of how they do in terms of just their ability to help you in terms of their... Um, their ethics, their kind of their strategic support, and vice versa, you really want to work with those folks again. So that was kind of mutually how we did that. So Thrive was one of our earliest investors in our last company. They were with us okay. kind of through, you know, through, through the early days and the bigger success. And so we got to know them really well. I've I've mm-hmm. personally known the team over there for over 10 years. Um, got it. and so they were kind of a natural, like, a natural partner for us to just like strategize on as we were like, Hey, we really want to take a big swing at healthcare. Um, so yeah, that's kind of some of the backstory.
1: Yeah. You, you know, and that's actually a good time to, to have a little segue about your former company that you founded in 2013, yeah. Hightower, you merged with another company VTS in in late 2016 and, yeah. and you were in the commercial real estate space. So how did you move into that space and what was the, you know, kind of what was the impetus and how did you make that change moving into healthcare?
0: Yeah. Um, so Hightower was really a, it was a technology company born out of me being a practitioner in the commercial real estate space with a problem, mm-hmm. right? So a lot of companies start that way. You're a domain expert in some industry and you're like, mm-hmm. this sucks. I, I know there can be something better. <laughs> right. And then you go do it. And so that was, that was the case for me. I was at the world's largest commercial real estate brokerage firm, CBRE, working with the most sophisticated clients on the landlord side, companies like Blackstone and Mm -hmm. JP Morgan, Mm -hmm. doing massive deals. And we were doing the whole thing on spreadsheets and paper and email. And it was just crazy to me. And I'm a guy, I've got a background in software engineering. I was a product manager at Microsoft. So that was really the impetus for Hightower was scratching my own itch. It was, I've got a problem. I know that there's a big market opportunity to kind of modernize the commercial real estate marketplace. Um, I I think that that's going to go online just like residential real estate went online Mm -hmm. with Zillow and Redfin. And and that led to Hightower. Hightower, we kind of brought our minimum viable product or V1 to the marketplace. We're scaling pretty well. And there was another company that was doing the exact same thing at the exact same time, BTS. And so you had two companies, two (laughs) small enterprise software companies in a battle to kind of create a new category of software, which is we we were saying, we were telling commercial landlords, hey, you've got to be managing all of this stuff, your whole business online and in a way that's transparent and mobile first. And so the two of us were just duking it out for like three and a half years Um, and commercial real estate is a tight knit vertical, right? So when you think about vertical industries, about 150 to 200 commercial landlords and brokerage firms represent like 85% of the total market um, in the U.S. And we were battling it out for those folks. And so about three and a half years in, after the two companies had, I think, collectively, we'd raised almost 100 million bucks, and we're just beating each other up. Mm-hmm. Nick, was, who was the CEO of UTS, and I got together and we said, hey, where do our visions align and where do they not align? And it turned out that our visions aligned a ton. And we had the same dream of the future of commercial real estate and long story, super short, because it was just an incredibly challenging process to go make this happen. Mm -hmm. We decided, Hey, we're going to be way better together. Like one plus one is going to equal five here. Mm -hmm. We can go kind of sew up the category. We can kind of be the definitive company that is like bringing commercial real estate kind of online. Um, And so that's what we did. So we merged the two companies at the end of 2016, And the growth story since then was like super exciting. We've, uh, the company's grown like 10X since then. Um, It's kind of the undisputed kind of definitive leader raised another couple hundred million bucks after that. So it was uh, was very hard to do, but in retrospect, both Nick and I would say it was the absolute right thing to do for the two companies and for, we think, the industry.
1: Mm -hmm. So uh, you were with CBRE for about six years. Yeah. And your last position was as a first vice president. Correct? Yep. Yep. What level of management was that? And what made you think you could be the CEO of a startup?
0: <laughs> <laughs> it was zero level of management, pretty much. It was, I mean. It's a in, fancy in, title, it,
1: like, like the best, everyone's a VP.
0: hundred <laughs> percent. It, well, it's it's actually, well, I'd say it a different way. The title was completely attached to production, not leadership, right? So I, I was I w- I had a senior title because I made the company a lot of money. I, I mm-hmm. we, we had a big book of business. But in terms of like org structure, leadership, um, I had a business partner. And we had three folks working for us. I put that in quotes because it was mostly like, it was mostly like a team of just kind of collaborators that were, we were out, we were out trying to, to grow our book of business. Mm -hmm. So coming into my experience as a first time founder, I had almost Mm -hmm. zero like direct man people management experience. I was drinking from the fire hose. I probably made every single mistake in the book. And, um, I do what I tell a lot of first-time founders. I'm like, you can do it. Like, it doesn't matter if you don't have that experience. Like, you will, you will, like, screw your way up through to success in in many ways. You you have to give yourself the opportunity to do so. So, yeah, that was that was kind of my transition. And just to put it in perspective, like, I went from from that role at CBRE to Hightower, and we hired 60 people in the first 18 months. So all of a sudden, I was the CEO of a 60-person company with like multiple levels of management. We're trying to figure everything out, and it was, I mean, you're drinking. From firehouse. That's for sure. (laughs)
1: Right. So you talked about all the mistakes that, you know, the mistakes that you made, what are, what are a few of the high points mistakes that you made Mm -hmm. and what, Mm. what did you learn and what have you done differently this time?
0: Yeah. Um, I would say a few of the biggest ones, Number one, as a manager and as, as, a, as a founder, um, and you're building a company, the most important layer that you can build is your executive team around you, right? right. So who's running sales? Who's running client success? Mm-hmm. Who's standing up product engineering? And being a first-time founder who had never done any of that before, I'd never hired a VP of sales. I'd never hired a, a head of marketing what I would have done in retrospect, what I I would have spent a lot more time talking to through investors and through other founders, just the people who've already done the role. Because it turns out like I was doing a lot of like armchair theorizing. I'm like, oh yeah, this is definitely what, you know, like our our VP sales should do in this vertical enterprise SaaS category. And some of that is right. And some of that's wildly off. What I would, and this is advice I give to every founder I talk to is like, so now get outside the building, just like you do with your customers and building product and go talk to five VPs of sales sales who are in a very similar capacity, and then go talk to three investors and go, what do you see in the best, you know, kind of heads of sales in Mm -hmm. similar companies, you start to collate that and you will have a much stronger opinion on kind of what you're doing. And then the next thing that it does, which is really valuable, is it builds your rubric for your interview process as Mm -hmm. well, which that was another thing. We were like interviewing these people. We're like, we don't even know how to tell if they're awesome or not. Um, So it's a big thing. A second big thing that I, you know, kind of a like mistake that I do that, that I would just, the the company would be materially more successful if I had not made this, this mistake was was chasing shiny objects when it came to kind of product scope sure. and, yeah. and focus. So yeah. Yeah. that was that was absolutely massive. And, and where it played out, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs face this, I hear it all the time, mm-hmm. which is they had a core thesis and they're like, this is the thing. This is the MVP. This is the problem. And this mm-hmm. is the solution. And they start iterating on that and get traction. They get product market fit. And customers are like, actually, this is pretty good, but you need to do these other things. And then they start growing that aperture in terms of scope. Now yeah. there's like parallel scope. They don't go deep, they go wider And they've got less conviction The further they go f- away from their kind of core thing And their product just gets less good and good And they slow down their perspective On solving yeah. that core problem amazingly Well, I virtually smack founders in the head Like mm-hmm. all the time going, don't make that mistake um, That I mean, that is probably the biggest lever That yep. if you can if you cannot screw that up yep. um, Will drive success Yeah, I would great.
1: agree with that I, I hear that, by the way, from founders That have made that mistake as well it's just, we all do.
0: It's so easy to do because the market is pulling you in so many directions. And then if you have competition, that is the ultimate worst case scenario. Cause like right. we in VTS, were having kind of this very much back and forth feature war. Mm-hmm. And if we had just ignored that feature war collectively, it would have been so much more successful and just mm-hmm. like doubling down on the thing that we have deep conviction. on.
1: Yeah. That's terrific. Yeah. So, um, you're at about 34 employees now. Yep. With uh, the new company. Yes. With novel. Right. Tell me a little bit about where'd you start and the path to 34 and, and really where you're looking to go here over the next 12 months.
0: Yeah. I mean, it might be useful to kind of rewind and go, well, weren't you in commercial real estate? And now you're in healthcare. Like I'll hit that. Cause I think you asked it like,
1: I did. The, yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah.
0: No, let me, let me hit that because I think that's super important. Yeah. I think it's also a thing that I want to tell people, which mm-hmm. is, so we, we were fortunate to have a lot of success with high and BTS got it to a good place. Um, and, and the companies cut off to the races. And I think for me, as I started to think about, it, I was, I was ready to like really, lean into like a societal problem. That's just yeah. kind of, I just kept getting this thing back to me in the back of my head. I'm like, I really just want, I really want to work on a problem that like affects my mom and my friends and mm-hmm. and and whatnot. And so for me, like this second company was kind of born out of essentially just me going like, what am I trying to solve for, for the next 10 or 15 years of my career? And it just, and I, tr- I tried to hit that from a bunch of different angles. I do a bunch of journaling and it just came kept coming back to like, I want to solve or at least work on a pressing societal problem. And that started a big, long homework assignment where I was like, cool. Like for me, it was climate change, healthcare and education. It's like the three big bugaboos mm-hmm. that I think are just like, that are just driving so much pain right now. And how I got to healthcare was I started just, I started just asking everyone I knew about health, about just their interactions with healthcare. Something You don't talk about much. You don't like pull that up in like coffee table conversation. Carol, hey, how's your healthcare life going? You're like, oh, yeah. let me tell you about how I'm filing for medical bankruptcy or I've got yeah. bills yeah. and arrears or like I can't figure out, you know, like a cancer diagnosis. So when I started asking the question, I just, people just started opening up and what they opened up with was just pure utter tragedy. I mean, like across the board, you know, from small tragedies to massive tragedies. Like truly things that like make you like tear up and like you get emotional and so like that really like that kind of human side of it. Like I know all the macroeconomic stuff. I know how broken it is. I know mm-hmm. I knew that healthcare was spent. We were spending seventeen point nine percent of our GDP on healthcare. <laughs> I knew the stats, but when when it got clear to me just how proximate the actual tragedy was to just my own social network and whatnot. Um, that was when I just made the decision that I have no idea how or when I'm going to be useful in healthcare, but I'm going to like lean in as a founder who knows how to build companies, knows how to build software, knows how to kind of disrupt old school industries. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to lean in on trying. And that, and that led to a long, essentially an 18 month journey of kind of first principle research on like, well, what is the healthcare industry? How does the marketplace work? Who are all the stakeholders? And that and that led to this very kind of non sexy corner of healthcare benefits brokerage that I truly believe is the if not one of if not the most kind of underappreciated change agents like stakeholders in the marketplace, and that's how we got there. So anyway, that's kind of like my long story, and it it leads to just one thing that I really just I beat on this drum all the time. I can tell people this with like with with um, with with deep kind of um, conviction is if you find a problem that you would, that truly is kind of like a mission oriented problem, like a problem, like I want to help people out. I can tell you the amount of like energy that you get just chasing that problem every day, like, like banging your head against the wall and going, well, when I wake up this morning, my job is to help fix healthcare somehow, lower the cost of healthcare. It, I can't tell you how much more motivating it is even than the, the kind of last thing that I worked on. So I am like asking and like, like just, Telling like founders, entrepreneurs, operators that uh, to lean into those because we get these real big ones and they're huge markets and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so it's a huge opportunity that I think is just massively under, I think, under-resourced from a human capital standpoint. And so back to your second, the kind of original question. So Nava officially started. So Donald and I were kind of finishing up our research in October of 2019. Okay. We officially incorporated the business January in 2020. Okay. Um, and that kind of the second half of 19 was when we were like, Oh my gosh, I think we've got a tiger by the tail. I think this is one of the most important distribution layers that no one's talking about in healthcare benefits brokerage. And I think the status quo sucks. And I think we can really modernize it just like residential real estate got modernized, travel got modernized, financial advisory got modernized and bring a lot of costs out of the system. And so 2020 was all about just standing up V1 of the infrastructure. It's like, we just need to become a benefits broker. So Donald and I went and got licensed, like we are now, you know, license carrying right. benefits sure. broker we built out the infrastructure we hired the core team so we ended 2020 with about 14 or 15 people Uh, we raised our series seed and then we 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 kind of we on the basis of early traction around customer development we raised our series a in in november of last year um Mm -hmm. and uh and now we're at about 40 34 people and we're growing fast we're kind of adding i don't know five or six people every couple of weeks Mm -hmm. and switching gears from kind of zero to one like zero to one kind of core infrastructure, initial value prop, et cetera, to kind of one, to sort of scale, Around um, around kind of our technology acceleration, and then just go to market. Market, you'll see kind of you'll see a lot more of Nava because we're pretty convinced that we can help a business with less than a thousand employees save like twenty percent on their healthcare while improving their benefits, which we think is just a monster unlock. So yeah. we're now just trying to get the word out. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: What What have you found to be the biggest challenge, Brandon, at adding people to your team, finding yeah. the right people?
0: Uh, yeah, it, it, I think the challenge always is when you're in a new industry that is, or when you're in a, like a venture backed kind of context where you the expectation is grow fast is managing the tension between rapid hiring, hiring pace and hiring quality. So that is always ever present, almost cliche and it's kind of presence, but it is true. Right. And so one of the things that, and actually if I were to add a third mistake that I made last go around that we are not making this go around, mm. which is I I made the mistake that I underappreciated the negative impact of hiring the wrong people and then also hiring good people, but putting them in the wrong circumstances where they didn't have the right support. You didn't Mm -hmm. have the infrastructure belt. You didn't even know what the role was supposed to be. And so the kind of measure twice, cut once, um, another, actually another frame that a friend of mine uses is like small, but mighty teams. And he's had this direct experience as well, where he's like, I have learned from personal experience that hiring three absolute amazing engineers, client success people pick the, pick the, right. you know, pick kind the, of the team. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah is like a five X lever over hiring six or seven. Okay. People that are struggling kind of in an, in an environment. So, it's got this like major knock on effect to like kind of higher slow in a way. Um, and so we're doing that. I, we are actually growing. Right. We are growing headcount less rapidly than we were growing headcount head at our last company, despite right. the fact that I think we're having a lot more go to market success relative mm-hmm. on a, on a timescale.
1: Yeah, that is so important. I'm really, really glad to hear you say that because this is one of the biggest challenges any growing startup has? Oh, you know, when do we hire? How many people do we hire? Well, what if we hire them and we don't need them yet? I mean, you know, there's a million questions you can be asking, right? And I, I always advise, mm-hmm. I know it's going to be, it's harder for you to do it more slowly and get the right people and And you may have some customers that you have to do some damage control with when that happens. And mm-hmm. everybody may not be getting the 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 attention you might like them to do, or maybe we're not bringing on customers as quickly as we can, mm. but it costs you exponentially more money to do it the other way.
0: <laughs> yeah, one thing that I've actually even noticed, so I've noticed that it's in fact kind of a fiction. Like one of the areas that we hired fast, and did not measure twice was in like go-to-market sales, you know, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And the truth was we didn't sell any more. Like we were no faster because in, yeah. on, on reflection, we had not built up like the internal muscle to really educate. Here is mm-hmm. here is sales at the company. Here's what great looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also didn't know what great looked like yet in terms of sales person, right? And so we would have been much more effective, actually, we probably would have been sold more if we had kept the team really tight knit and the founders were doing more of the kind of selling work and stuff like that. And so that's actually the other interesting thing, I think, is a lot of times it just truly does not even move the needle incrementally, even if it like efficiencies drop, um, because there's so much kind of loss in, um, in productivity. Mm -hmm. So that's a big one. And just one, one kind of tactic that I use to make sure that in just in the hiring process that you just don't, you know, kind of like proverbially Mm -hmm. just like, um, um, you know, kind of missed the, the dials. Just like you have to talk to at least five people on site. Like just, you have to like get five people through an onsite interview. You're going to learn so much by simply having five different looks. Um, and I, I see a lot of folks are like, ah, oh, they brought the first person in. They're desperate for someone they're like, oh, I think they're okay, but they legitimately haven't had a deep conversation with anyone else. Mm-hmm. If you, if that's the first time you're hiring that role, that's a recipe for like disaster. it's yep. just kind of one thing that you can do that if you do it, it will up-level the quality of person mm-hmm. you bring into the number.
1: Yeah, that's great. How did you and Donald get together originally?
0: Yeah. Oh, it is awesome. I was, I was at CBRE right. back in like 2012 going, I cannot sleep because I, I just know that someone's going to do the thing that I want to do. And <laughs> so I need to like either, you know, I need to like either do it or don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause it's just, it's just crazy for me. I got to this point where I'm like, what is my next step? And I'm like, I need a co-conspirator. I need someone to spar with. I need someone to like brainstorm with. And so I sent a note out to my old technology network. So all my, my friends over at Zillow, I'd worked at Zillow and Microsoft mm-hmm. previously. I said, hey, I'm looking for someone who might be interested in like, kind of like modernizing commercial real estate, et cetera, et cetera. Like, and, you know, who has a technical product background as well. And so we were introduced by a good friend of mine that I'd worked with at Microsoft and Donald had worked with at Redfin. And he said, Uh, oh, you like this guy? He's kind of got a, he's got a thing for real estate. And so Donald and I met in a coffee shop on... Capitol Hill in Seattle, Washington, and just hit it off from there. And it started out very, very casually, which is like, Hey, let's just riff together. Let's just mm-hmm. riff on like, I'm the domain mm-hmm. expert. He's the product expert. Um, let's riff. And the more that we riff, the more I was like, Oh, wow, well, you're unlocking product insights for me that I hadn't even thought about. And he's like, wow, I think you do have a tiger by the tail here. This is a big, yeah. like really kind of busted inefficient industry. And that was as a product person kind of got him excited.
1: So, just before this question, you talked about the importance of interviewing, for you, mm-hmm. five yeah. different vice presidents of sales to see if you're headed down the right path. Yep. So, did you do the same thing with potential co-founders?
0: <laughs> I kind of did. How did you know I it
1: did. was him, like this yeah. is the guy you wanted to walk down the aisle with?
0: Oh, Yes. Totally, and and I sort I did. And actually, there's kind of two ways to do that. It's like go broad and meet with a bunch of people, and mm-hmm. then go deep with the person that you think sure. you might want to get married to. Um, and, you know, from a from a co-founder standpoint. So, I I did work with kind of two other folks, and it was kind of this just uh, introduced similarly through that network, and so kind of riffed with them, had meetings, you know, like talked about the space, even tried to prototype a little bit, and in sort of in parallel, so. And then, and then when I and was doing the same with Donald. And of those three conversations, the one with Donald just like gained momentum, right? It was just like the other ones naturally lost momentum, and this one gained momentum. But I, I'll I'll say kind of one interesting thing about like co-founder dating and choosing the co-founder. We so that we we then got a third co-founder, Niall, our CTO, who's who's currently the CTO of PTS. And the three of us said, you know, we were very much kind of trying to be like really thoughtful about this. And so we basically were like, we gotta figure out if we're gonna work okay together. So what can we do to kind of put ourselves in like the game time environment, like ahead of time. And so we went up there, there were these, um, these uh, hackathon competitions Mm -hmm. called startup weekend that are around the country. They do like, it's like 48 hours, just super hardcore kind of. And so we went up, we drove to the, we're like, is there one of these in the next week or so that we could go find? Turned out there was in like Northern Canada. So we drove (laughs) like nine hours from Seattle up to (laughs) this um, tiny, fairly small town in Canada. And we did a startup weekend hackathon together and we got to the end of that and we're like, we're like, we still like each other. This is good. And, and actually we performed pretty well. So that actually, that was a big thing for us where I would just, I encourage people to do the work together. Like just get into the work. The work will tell you like, if mm-hmm. this is working out.
1: I think one of the biggest mistakes and, and you certainly solved it in some great, in some great ways, because it does not look like you made this mistake is that people think they think it's going to be like it is in the honeymoon stage. Right? I mean, yeah. think, think of, you know, totally. think of one's dating history. Yeah. You know, you go out with somebody and you think, wow, that's, I'd really like to see that person again.
0: Oh. And then three
1: months later, you're like, what was I thinking? <laughs>
0: yeah. I right? can agree more. Yeah. So
1: it's, it's, you know, people have to start, get into the work. That's right. They have to, they really have to start doing it and thinking about this is the honeymoon stage. What's it going to be mm-hmm. like when this is over with? Yeah. Do I, do I still, you know, am I going to still like this person? Am I, do I still want to spend would, my time with them? Yeah
0: totally agree and i would say just like don't define the relationship too early you just That's don't right. need to it actually right. people really get over-rotated on like is this person my ct i'm like huh? well how long have you known them well i had one 45 minute coffee and then we're doing a whiteboard session No, just riff mm-hmm. like like riff is like the term that we use to just take yes. all the air out of the room and just kind of make it chill mm-hmm. and and then momentum either builds or it doesn't and then and then you do try want to try to get into that game time environment as much yeah. as you can
1: What would you say is the biggest thing that bothers you about your industry?
0: My current industry? Mm -hmm. Oh, boy. Uh,
1: (laughs) Or the top three. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, my big... So we are in a healthcare crisis in a Yes it is not a problem, it's not a chronic issue, it is a freaking crisis. Right. Medicare and Medicaid are set to go bankrupt in 2027 if we don't show. Yeah. Um, It's so across the board. So so like Mm -hmm. it's a five alarm fire here in healthcare. Mm -hmm. And so what bugs me about my current industry is that every single established principle, regulatory framework, um, you know, like custom is oriented around driving cost up and maintaining really, really low transparency for the end user and the consumer. It's not, people are like, so Brandon, do you hate United Healthcare or do you hate so-and-so hospital? Not at all. Like I hate the game, not the player. So yeah. it, it is truly is just a number of just, you know, kind of standard capitalistic actors mm-hmm. acting in a game of, you know, that whose rules are like defined, you know, in a way that, that kind of leads to costs going up and quality mm-hmm. outcomes going down. Mm-hmm. So I think like, that's my macro beef with the industry. It's like, we are the most, there is no other marketplace I've ever encountered. This is a $3 trillion marketplace yeah. where every single year yeah. without fail, costs go up five to 7% a year Horrible. and user experience goes down. I mean, yeah. you you can't find another industry that's been doing that forever. So mm-hmm. that's my beef. I think the I think the kind of the more specific thing I would say is that there are two things that are going to like set us free as an industry. One is shining light on the data um, that people need to make better decisions. Mm-hmm. So we are very much in that business. Like, we we see ourselves as we are going to bring like employer benefits into the modern marketplace era where buyers can find the stuff they need. Um, and then number two is that you've got to kind of you've got to bring competition. Um, Like what is happening, it's actually a very simple, in in my opinion, kind of root cause is a little bit like we're just competing on the wrong vectors. Um, And so one of the jobs of kind of Nava is to, Make the marketplace such that the supply side, you know, kind of folks compete on the right vectors—the things that mm-hmm. an HR leader to thirty percent companies like. Cool. I'm glad they're competing on cost, mm-hmm. quality, and convenience. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, so yeah, those are kind of my big
1: beats. <laughs> yeah, well, those, those is are some pretty it. big beats. I'm curious, yeah. you know, w- when you talk about the healthcare and, and so on and so forth, yeah. Are are you placing any accountability on a human being and how they take care of themselves and the fact that? You know, we live in a country that subsidizes the worst foods possible for any human being to be
0: eating. When you talk about health in America, right? Like, let's forget healthcare industry and insurance and all the things that people talk about. Just talk about health, right? Like, for the we are the first modern first world country whose life expectancy dropped. It dropped last year. It's insanity. I mean, like that—that is nuts, actually. And so, so when you talk about health in America. I think you you start to unpack a lot of different things. First of all, the healthcare industry, unfortunately, is incentivized to produce more interactions with itself, right? And right. the most valuable interactions are interactions that are related to emergency intervention.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Surgery, you know, like back surgery, like we gotta go in, we gotta specialty drugs and stuff like that. And so 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 that's a big driver, right? And so like we've got a, we've got an entire industry who is incentivized, flywheels driving around, more interactions, and the most valuable. Interactions or surgeries, not primary care visits, right? right? So preventative visits. So that's this a big a problem. On the other side, though, like back to your kind of like you know the subsidies of like you know kind of food that's bad and stuff like that. We also just have a, a kind of a consumer culture where me as an individual consumer. I am just getting hammered with like lots and lots of marketing for stuff that is probably not good for me. Like, honestly, that that just turns out like it turns out that more time on my screen is not going to help me live a longer life. Right. It turns out that like more TikTok videos are not going to make me a happier person. It turns out that unhappy people make bad eating decisions and bad health decisions. And so I I am a big believer in personal accountability Mm -hmm. and consumer, you know, kind of consumer empowerment. I think when I, I have a lot of empathy though, when I look at like a single mother of two and I go, mm-hmm. you need to be more personally accountable. And and then I'm like, she is, she, the amount of things that she's right. actually having to like deal with, while while we have this like massive like really powerful and really smart um, kind of set of industries that are like how do I get her to right. consume more social media to like buy the sugary drink you know to do the whatever those things are right so we kind of need to make healthy choices really profitable yes. and so that's kind of it's been exciting to see. Because it's so shitty, the status quo, Mm -hmm. there have been some really neat companies that are starting to make healthy choices profitable, like Beyond Meat and Impossible Burger and you know, like like new kind of new healthy choices. So I'm hopeful, but I'm not naive to the fact that we're that that that's a big element too. It's like, how do we make Mm -hmm. personal healthy choices more profitable for the industries that are trying to get your Mm -hmm. attention?
1: Yeah. How do how do we get the lot the government lobbyists, right? Okay. to to lobby for the healthy choices rather than yeah. corn syrup yeah. Yeah. and soy. Yeah. yeah. You know, that's sprayed with chemicals. Totally. And and yeah. I could go on and on and on, but I want to make sure that I don't get sued by someone <laughs> <laughs> yeah. for for trashing their industry. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, you. and and to your point, you know, the mother of two, she's grasping at straws. It's, you know, she's yeah. doing the best she can. Yeah. We have to have empathy for that. Right. I mean, I certainly do knowing that I was by myself last year while we were closed down for two months. yeah. yeah. I mean, by myself, I saw my horses yeah. Yeah. and that was uh, practically it. Yeah. it. It was hard. It's hard to be alone. So, it's, you yeah. know, we all have our issues and, you know, I'm yeah. still, I'm still working on getting my, getting my personal health back to where mm-hmm. it was before all that. Right. Totally. So, yeah. so, so, and
0: so many are like well, literally exactly. tens of millions of all of us doing that. Right. Yeah. So it's like, how do you make, I, I think one of the things that we're in the business of is like how do, for specifically for us is like, cause our job is to help you buy healthcare better and then also use healthcare smarter, the healthcare yes. that you buy. And so, one of the big things that we're using technology to do is help someone like you or me make smarter healthcare decisions, but make yes. that easier to do, not harder to do. Because it turns out the current industry makes it so freaking hard yes. to do smart things. Like. Right. It's just so hard to find the dermatologist that doesn't overcharge you and gets great outcomes. It's so mm-hmm. hard to question all those bills and go, "Well, actually, could I do it cheaper if I went to an independent MRI facility versus mm-hmm. getting my MRI at the hospital?" Yeah, those are exactly very right. hard things to do. So yeah, anyway, yeah. One regardless of, of whether you it have it insurance easier.
1: or not, I think you know sometimes, oh, yeah. and I don't want to get too distracted on this, but you know, insurance, I think it, it causes people to just. Go listen to the doctor, and well, I can just go to the doctor and get mm. this fixed. instead yep. of really looking at what is the best option, I mean, I, I pay yeah. cash for a lot of stuff,
0: yeah, and
1: totally. people give you discounts for cash mm-hmm. yep. instead of an enabling, sure. thank you, you know insurance enables people mm-hmm. in in a way yeah. that I don't think is effective. Often, uh, I mean, it it should be there to help you, but, but it shouldn't just be there because, oh, I don't feel good. And, you know, and I'm going to go to the doctor and I don't feel good. And I'm going to go to the doctor and, and it's ridiculous. I mean, I, I went and had an x-ray recently instead of, uh, you know, going, going to the doctor and doing it. I went to one of those facilities, you know, how much it was $25. Yeah.
0: Yeah. How much it would have been if I'd gone
1: to the doctor considerably more.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, right? Totally. So I mean, um, you just have
1: to really think about it that way. And I think it's more and more people, and there's more and more options like 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 Nava come out. Mm-hmm. People, my hope is people will start to realize there's a different way to do things.
0: Yeah, and you're absolutely right. You need to make the different or the better way easier because we are right. all in the end humans, and we we mm-hmm. kind of like we do the the easiest thing all the time, yeah. oftentimes. Um, and the reason that the traditional insurance companies are so motivated to have you just do that thing
1: mm-hmm. is
0: because their, um, you know, their, their business model is very simple. They just collect a percentage of the total premiums that we spend on health insurance. Right. And so then the question is, well, what makes premiums go up in health insurance? Hmm. Well, it's actually using more healthcare. That's right. the, literally just what happens. Like the health insurance premiums are essentially what they think you're going to spend in healthcare plus a 20% premium. That's what yeah. it is for small group. So again, when you think about what's motivating all of the stuff, all those just big kind of like indicators that have mm-hmm. some, you know, again, back to the single mom with two kids, tell her, no, just go to the urgent care or just go, go check out the hospital. You've got a hundred dollar copay or whatever. It is, it is just like very aligned to, you know, to, to kind of the core business model. So yeah, yeah. Again, it's it's making the decision that you made, right? Like, which is, hey, we can do a twenty-five dollar X-ray at this offsite facility. How do we make that decision the obvious decision at that moment? Right. In time? Easier said than done, but that's right. what needs to be done.
1: Yeah. yeah, I had to do research to get there.
0: You did, yeah. yeah you had of to go outside the curve. You you had to go outside of the you know of the swim lane to go figure that out. Right. And kudos to you. We need more people like well,
1: you. Uh, that. you know, but but listen, I sit in front of a computer all day, Brandon, mm-hmm. and I've been in technology surrounded by technology for almost 30 years. So for me, it's yeah. easy. It's easier than it might be for somebody who's like, yeah. oh, I just got this smartphone. What the hell am I, what the hell do I do totally. with
0: it? I can barely check my email. Yeah, exactly. Totally
1: how do you find your clients or or, are you doing inbound marketing, outbound marketing? What does that look like?
0: One of the big opportunities that we saw when we thought about how do we disrupt the Mm -hmm. traditional benefits brokerage industry was that the traditional benefits brokerage industry operates kind of customer acquisition and marketing like it's 1993. Meaning that I don't think they've really leaned into the things that have made like really great B2B software companies Mm -hmm. great, which is you build an amazing community. You bring real true thought leadership Mm -hmm. to your Mm -hmm. core Stakeholder and actually, like teach them something really valuable, and you're always in front of them. You think about it, you use software, you use technology to just be there. So, what we're doing is we I we got pretty good at that in my last company because we had to build this big B two B software company mm-hmm. and like attract companies like Blackstone to us and stuff. Right. And uh, we're kind of taking that playbook and we're bringing it to traditional benefits brokerage. And so, mm-hmm. to answer your question, then okay, cool. How do we find customers? Well, we are if you go. Anywhere near Nava our LinkedIn page or our website, you will see us talking about the things that our customers care about. So we are having amazing conversations about COVID and Delta variant, return to work, with like some of the foremost leading thinkers on this topic, like Dr. Marty McCary and um, you know the head of Total Rewards at Delta Airlines, I've got two hundred, a hundred thousand employees. So we're trying to bring kind of like really, really good content and insight on the specific questions that small business HR folks are thinking about, Um, and then we're bringing kind of of like an industrial grade, you know, outreach program to them. Like we, they've got to get to know Nava fast, right? Mm. We have to go from never heard of you to, Oh yeah, those Nava folks. They're they're the ones that helped me kind of figure out that one thing. Or I sent my CEO, the fireside chat they had with the head of healthcare at Walmart. Cause he's talking about something I've been trying to get that CEO to think about. Mm. Um, and so that's worked really well so awesome. far, actually it turns out. And, and the reason I think it's worked well is if you talk to any HR leader at a company with like, honestly less than a thousand employees Mm -hmm. and ask him or her like, where are you getting insights? Where are you getting like like the kind of big aha moments? They will struggle. They'll be like, honestly, I have to beg, borrow and steal for that. Like I've got my own kind of like, I've got my own like my my email network of my HR peers that I'm going to, and we're going asking each other questions. So we see like a real opportunity to kind of fill that gap and give them something that like the big companies are getting. Like the, there are there is great thought leadership. If you are running people operations at like, uh, you know, like Airbnb. So like we just actually, we just brought on as a new advisor, the head of total rewards and benefits for Airbnb. Okay. She's amazing. Mm-hmm. She knows more in like her left hand than, you know, than I think most people will know about how do you bring an amazing benefits, healthcare, you know, like remote workforce mm-hmm. kind of like support system. And so we're basically, we bring people like her onto the team and go, Tracy, help us educate that 50 employee, like HR leader on what they can do and be their support service, the kind of support system there. So that's worked really well. Yeah. So anyway, that's, Those are some mm-hmm. of the things that we're doing.
1: That's great. What would you say makes your uh, company culture unique, Brandon?
0: So I think if we're doing remote really well, um, I will say I'm gonna toot my own horn here, and we are a remote first company with with people in 16 different states, And we had the cohesiveness, the just energy, the vibe, the like personal relationships there. I think we're doing that really well. And I think that's because we've also leaned into just getting together in person and like special, but like less frequent ways. Like brought everyone out to Park City, Utah just had an absolute blast. Um, And we're also getting really good at just communicating virtually via our channels, like Slack, Mm -hmm. Zoom. We've got Mm -hmm. a bunch of stuff there. Um, I think if you, I'll just give you the other perspective. So If so, if you compare us to our industry, the benefits brokerage industry, what will make us unique is, I mean, we look like we're from planet Mars to the to to that. When we bring on people from that industry, they're like, it's it is, it's like you brought a technology culture and a technology instinct and an innovation Mm -hmm. kind of instinct to the industry. And then you wrapped it in a mission that everyone's like truly wakes up and says, Mm -hmm. I'm at NAVA and I'm trying to fix healthcare. Like, I love it. I, I right. truly like our, from our SDRs to our marketing, to our engineering, mm-hmm. they're bought into, I work yes. at Nava cause I'm here to fix healthcare. So That's I think right. that would be probably one of the most unique things. I think right. people just are really into that. Yeah.
1: People, people are, you know, they, they're driven by the opportunity to make a difference.
0: I am, I am agreeing with that statement more and more. And that has yeah. become my biggest unlock. And like, good. it's, it is just yeah. like, I, I, It's if you can start your company with that as its foundation, truly, it's like, I don't know anything else, but I know that I'm out to solve this like really big, gnarly problem. And I'm not going to finish until we've made some sort of dent Mm -hmm. that will carry you more than any other awesome product idea, really killer technology, really cool kind of, you know, marketing spin on a solution ever. Mm -hmm. And so it's just monster unlock for sure.
1: Yeah. I mean, nothing comes across like passion, really. Mm,
0: Yeah. It really, totally.
1: it, it, it's authentic. Yeah. I, I mean, there's really nothing right you need to say about that.
0: No, I, well, and I think the, the corollary to that is nothing come, comes across like genuine passion and nothing generates genuine passion like a freaking mission where you're like, dude, I got to get this done. I mean, yeah. it's so fun to be able to talk to like your grandma and and go and, and she's like, cause we've got people are like starting new and they're like, and, and we're talking about like, well, how do you describe what you do? And they're like, well, I'm working on fixing healthcare. And everyone's like, grandma's like, thank you so much. Like, good job. <laughs> well, help, can you help Teddy over there? Cause he's yeah, got yeah. like the hospital issue. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it just gets you fired up.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you have a, a sweet spot or it, it, what range of employee numbers does a company did have. To yeah. utilize your, to, your to kind of wonderful be like services. Our, yeah.
0: Yeah. So we've been, we're very focused on who's kind of the right fit versus who's not. Good. The right fit is when you get to about 40 or 50 employees, there's this kind of like inflection point of complexity around your healthcare and your benefits up to about, let's call it a thousand employees. Like that window mm-hmm. is like complexity goes way up. Um, in terms of like what you have to think about mm-hmm. and your actual capabilities and support from the traditional industry is just like terrible. Like it's just really, really low. That's where we're delivering that kind of 20% savings, better benefits outcome pretty consistently. 40 you know, to 40, a thousand. 40 to a thousand. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: So what are, um, what are the poor people like me who have fewer than 40 employees supposed to do?
0: <laughs> well, we're coming now, honestly, like we, so in some ways, in some ways what we had to do. So yeah. So there's a couple of things. Like, Well, there's an industry that we really like. There's a there's a bunch of new players in the kind of the PEO industry, which okay. is the kind of just like, out, yep. yeah, professional employment organization. Mm-hmm. So JustWorks, we really like, they're, they're friends of ours. Their sweet spot is like zero to 15, maybe 20 employees. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so they're great because they basically, it's just like, you just hit the button and you're like, just figure out my payroll, figure out my benefits. And they do a pretty good job of like, of, of wrapping that up into one. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of like, they when the, they kind of hand the ball off to us when they, when you hit that kind of next inflection point. Um, but then I would also just say like what we're trying to do here is like we build the solution and then we try to productize this solution so that it actually can be like someone like you could literally just go on someday to Nava.io and just go cool just plug me into this like fortune 500 benefits right. offering thing and I've only got one person I'm going to be two people in five years I don't care mm-hmm. but I get access to it. That is what we want to do but we mm-hmm. that's going to take us a little A while to go and like kind of build the infrastructure on the back end in order needed to kind of be able to bring that solution down market.
1: What would you say is the biggest threat to your company in its success?
0: Hmm. I mean, genuinely, I think the biggest threat is that we kind of lose kind of like relentless and almost like unreasonable orientation around our mission. Like that is, that actually is the biggest threat because I think like I have very deep confidence in the market opportunity. The market's $22 billion annual commission markets crazy. Um, I have deep confidence in our timing. I think the timing is right. um, Given the number of like disparate, disruptive point Mm -hmm. solutions that we can bring in. So it's really going to be an execution risk problem, right? Like it's execution risk. And then you're like, cool, well, we could screw up on product development and stuff like that. But it's actually more the biggest lever that we have right now is this maniacal kind of alignment around mission, which will help us recruit really awesome people. Like, dude, I want to be all in on healthcare Mm -hmm. and then keep us really focused so that we don't do the thing, which is like, well, let's chase some near-term dollars and market share growth. Um, If we cut some corners around like her commitment to transparency and alignment with employers for example so yeah i would say it actually okay. genuinely is that
1: so you live in new york yeah
0: i so i split time between new york and park city utah so i'm actually in park city utah now I'm going to be back in new york in november
1: got it okay so yeah. how do you spend your time when you're not working
0: Outdoors for me. It's all, well, I kind of do this thing in the morning where I like do a little 10 minute meditation. I journal Mm -hmm. for about 20 minutes and Mm -hmm. then, but when I'm not working, it's all, and that, which is why we're here in Park City, spend a ton of time because like the, the thing that kind of refills my cup, like almost instantaneously is a hike, a trail run, mountain bike ride. Um, So really focus on that kind of personally. And then, and then my wife and I, you know, try to just spend a lot of time together out in nature. And we're also, uh, we're, we're, yeah. So we're, we're kind of pretty passionate about that together.
1: When do you head back East?
0: Uh, Right before Halloween. Yeah. So we'll be out there for a while and then back out to park city for kind of like the winter, you know, ski season and stuff like that. Yes.
1: Yes. I I understand that. (laughs) So if someone is listening to this and they're saying, wow, this is a, Awesome company. I have to investigate working for them. Mm. What do they do?
0: Well, first off, we are growing like crazy and we're looking for people who are fired up about our mission. So, um, Easiest way, I mean, link our, our LinkedIn page or Nava.io. You okay. go to either of those and we are just like very explicit about like all the different career opportunities. The other I, thing that I think about too is and we've already had a couple of really interesting wins here is if you don't see the role, if you're like, well, I am a perfect fit for right. this. This is right. awesome, but I don't see the role in the seven roles. Mm-hmm. Just send us a note anyway, because right. we actually have recently hired some folks where they're like, I don't quite fit, but like it actually ended up or like actually we were thinking about something like that. So mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So, so reach out to us. Yeah. yeah, that's
1: that's super important for people to realize that, you, you know, just just because somebody has a, a a post up doesn't mean that that they're so not gonna, that you shouldn't reach out to them.
0: Especially, uh, and I've had people
1: really push yeah. back at me on that, and I'm like, no, no, yeah. I've been doing this for 29 years. Yeah. If you think you are a fit for something, yeah. You know, I, I'll tell you a quick funny yeah. story. I uh, I was coming out of, hopefully that I won't lose any listeners here. I was coming out mm-hmm. of the gun range last Tuesday from yep. from shooting. And uh-huh. uh, some guy gets out of his truck and he goes, so you're a headhunter. What do you do? <laughs> I said, well, <laughs> the- I'm not really a headhunter anymore, but <laughs> I'm not giving up Ooh. that license plate I've had for a long, long, long time. And uh-huh. um, uh, we, we chatted and he works yep. for a very well-known company that happens mm-hmm. to be headquartered here. And, you know, we connected afterward because he said, you know, I'd love to, I'd love to find my next thing. And Mm -hmm. I said, you know, he's, he's the kind of person that I would actually make the time to put in some calls for to companies and say, look, I've got a, -hmm. I've got a guy here. Here's what his deal is. Here's Mm -hmm. where he spent his life. And you really need to talk to him. Right. So people should never be afraid. I mean, they don't always have somebody like me that knows exactly what to say to somebody, but (laughs) really get out there and, and make that effort to say, you know, you don't ask, you don't get.
0: Yeah. I'd also just say it's, it's unique. I mean, there, there's something very compelling as a hiring manager sure. when someone just inbounds and says, I'm passionate about what you're doing. That's like right. that is actually like, actually the first thing that we think about when we're doing interviewing around kind of core values alignment is yeah. like, how in are they on our mission, for example? And so like, just when you inbound, like you're already checking these boxes that we're mm-hmm. interviewing for anyway down the yeah. line. So, and, and also I, secondly, I really believe in serendipity where it's like, mm-hmm. you just do that. And then the That's dots right. connect sometime down the Line, you've created this kind of mutual connection. Yeah. I, so, yeah.
1: yeah, I, I, again, agree a thousand percent. Well, gosh, yeah. uh, Brandon Weber, co-founder and CEO of Nava. This has been a really informative and interesting and delightful conversation. I really want to thank you for your time. Likewise. Thanks, Carol. That was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to Authentically Successful. If you are a successful founder or CEO who would like to be on this program, please visit verticalelevationcom slash podcast slash apply. If you learned something from this interview and it made a difference, please share it on LinkedIn or Twitter. You can also do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend. And if you know of someone who would be a great guest, tag them on LinkedIn or Twitter to let them know about the show and include the hashtag